Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes, and I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. Donald Trump is the president of the United States. But what does that mean for believers as we pursue reconciliation? We'll talk about that and more as we talk with Lisa Sharon Harper in this special edition of the Engaging Missions Show. Welcome to the Engaging Missions Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Thanks so much for joining us for this special edition of the Engaging Missions Show. Donald Trump is being inaugurated as President of the United States, and a lot of people, some people are happy. And some people are not really sure, maybe not real happy at all. But the question is, what does the gospel say to us about how we should live in a Donald Trump presidency, or maybe even without regard to a Donald Trump presidency? So let's set aside some of the politics right now. We're certainly going to talk about those and frame this up. But our real focus today is on the gospel and living the gospel. I'll be introducing our guest in just a second, but I just want to share with you that she's written a book. It's really good. When I tell you about it, and I recommend that you get it, I really mean it. I'm not just trying to sell a book here. It's a really good book. It's a really deep presentation of the gospel, and I do recommend it. And we're not going to take any more time. We're just going to get right into this, and I'll go ahead and introduce Lisa here in just a second. All right, let's get started. Today, I am so happy to have with me Lisa Sharon Harper. She's the Chief Church Engagement Officer with Sojourners, and she's also the author of several books, including her most recent work, The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Now, I do want to say right at the outset, if you haven't read this book, or maybe you haven't even heard about it, this is a good book. You need to check this out. It is worth your time. Now, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm like really excited to be here and, and talking with you and having an opportunity to connect with your audience. Well, thank you. So we're going to kind of just jump right in at the beginning. Your book is about making things right, about being reconciled. And frankly, as I look across our nation right now, across the U.S., it seems like there's a whole lot of stuff wrong across our nation globally as well. Division, fear, discrimination, racial inequality, gender inequality, all kinds of stuff. And now we have also a new, very outspoken president. What does radical justice and shalom look like as we enter the Trump presidency? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> I think that's kind of the million-dollar question right yeah, I now, think it is, it? yeah. I think that, and you want to start right off with that. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, no, I, I, seriously, I think that, that when we talk about radical shalom, or just really shalom, because shalom itself as a concept is radical. When we talk about shalom, what we're talking about is the, the radical connectedness between all of God's creation. And in my research, one of the things that I found in, in the scripture was that one of the ways that, that those relationships are broken the quickest and fastest is through domination. 
is from different parts of creation trying to dominate the other, whether it's the domination of humans over the rest of creation or men over women, usually, although it could also go the other way, whether it is the domination of, of one ethnic group over others or over another or one nation over another, or the domination within families that can happen. Those, basically, when that happens, what you, what you really have is you have the crushing of the image of God in the one who is being dominated. And so, as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, I am, I'm jealous for the image of God. I want the image of God to flourish on earth. I don't want it to be crushed or diminished. So what that leads me to in the public square is to make sure that I'm pushing for policies that, that encourage the, the flourishing of the image of God in every corner of our society. So we talk about the Trump presidency, which hasn't happened yet. Granted, yeah. we don't really, you know, we can't, nobody can tell the future. But if past is prologue, then what we do know is we, we know the rhetoric that he, that he used, that he opened continued and closed his candidacy with, and actually his election speech. We know his cabinet choices. His cabinet choices, the very first pick was one that is actually an appointment. It doesn't have to be confirmed. Steve Bannon as his chief strategist. And Steve Bannon is an avowed, I mean, he is a white nationalist, an avowed white nationalist um, who owns... Uh, and will run, or used to run Breitbart, um, uh, dot com, which is a white nationalist site. Um, and so, you know, this was his very first pick. And then the second pick, I believe, was Jeff Sessions to lead the DOJ, the Department of Justice. And Jeff Sessions, at various times, has actually run exactly counter to the whole purpose of the Department of Justice. He he hailed the, the demolishing, actually, of the Voting Rights Act. He said it didn't need to be renewed. You know, he has actually celebrated the Klan at another point in his life. So this is actually somebody who is the exact opposite of what the Department of Justice was created to do and to be and to how it was created to, to function in society. So when we look at his cabinet appointments, his rhetoric, promising not only to build a wall, but also to do mass deportations, to most likely do a, a Muslim registry, and to ban Muslims from entering the country. This is someone who's, whose power, uh, the capacity to govern as president, has the capacity to crush large swaths of the image of God in our society. So, for my money, what I think and for my faith, what I, what I believe is that as Christians, Jesus followers, the ones who follow the one who said, however you treat the least of these is how you treat me. For those who say that we follow him, it's imperative then that we do everything we can to defend and protect those who Jesus called the least of these during this administration. So you mentioned that defending and protecting in your book, you, you came up, you, you mentioned a few different ways that we could do that kind of thing. You shared some things about getting to know people and some things like that. Can you maybe kind of top us off and help us understand maybe one or two specific actions that we can take as believers to make sure that we are defending those who need defending? 
Sure. I mean, I, I mean, you know, actually, there is a, a current initiative that's beginning called the Matthew 25 Initiative. The Matthew 25 Initiative is really all about, first of all, people will be signing on to a pledge, the Matthew 25 Pledge. And that pledge is very simple. It actually says, I pledge to defend and protect the least of these, the vulnerable in our society, in the name of Jesus. And so those who signed the Matthew 25 pledge, which you can find on multiple different sites, people, different organizations will be rolling it out over the course of January this month. So if you're connected with any really large Christian organization, you'll probably have an opportunity to sign it on their site because there's no one organization or leader that's a part of it. It's really a collective Christian effort. So that's the first thing is to go ahead and sign the pledge. And then secondly, we'll have opportunities to particularly protect and defend three people groups that are at the most risk right now. And those are, one, immigrants, in particular Latinos, but especially immigrants. I mean, we're immigrants at large. And then second is African-Americans and Latinos in America, specifically the ways that they're threatened by lack of accountability on police forces. And then the third is Muslims. So we're saying, look, if there's going to be a registry, I'm going to be the first in line and I'm going to be signing up as a Muslim in order to to throw off this really unjust system that, that is really in the works to be put put into action in the first 100 days. So so those are really specific ways, but you know, now taking a step back, looking at the book, at, at the very good gospel in in its most basic form, what it looks like to be a shalom maker is to love, is to love in every sphere of our lives, to love ourselves, to love across genders, to love, and to love is, is, is sacrificial. It actually gives of self. It doesn't demand of others. It doesn't seek to dominate another. In fact, it seeks the flourishing of the other. So within families, we're called to love. Within communities, we're called to love. Between communities, we're called to love. Within states and state legislatures, through our vote, through public policy creation, we're called to love the neighbor. Even the neighbor will never know. And through our our international policy, we're called, and I believe we will be held accountable, for how we love our international neighbors. So as Christians, very, you know, I think the very first thing we can do is we can take an audit of our love. We can ask the question, how is my love doing right now? Where is my love falling short? Where do I not even know enough about people to be able to love them? Do I know enough about my neighbors? Do I know enough about, you know, different ethnic groups that might live in different parts of the city and what their struggles and hopes and dreams are? Do I know enough about the poor, those who have been typically disenfranchised or marginalized? These are the ones that Jesus calls us to love. Not only in Matthew 25, the last sermon he ever gave, but also in Luke 4, the very first sermon he ever gave, and and many, many times in between. Wow, that, that's great. And, you know, I, I so appreciate you basically taking us through First Corinthians and talking about love. I, I did want to ask one question, because as I think about, well, it's probably not fair to talk about the typical American. Let's talk about me. I'm not sure that I know how 
to know enough to love my neighbors well, to love my, especially my international mm. neighbors well. Well, how how do I begin moving forward within the context of already living a life, already having neighbors, already having people? How do I begin to branch mm-hmm. out and to get to know people? That's awesome. That's a great question. Well, I mean, I think that, the, you know, not every, it's not going to be possible for folks who might live in more isolated areas or areas that don't have a large diversity to go out and like make an international friend or go out and make a black friend or, you know, that kind of thing. That, and that takes for a long time. And maybe it will come, but I don't think that our love has to be limited to that. We have infinite capacity to love because God is infinite and God is love. So if we have faith in Jesus and we have relationship with God, then we have the ability to cross over the chasm that might exist between us and our neighbor and to find the way to love. And I think that the very first thing is that we need to actually get to know their stories. Now, there's, you may not need or be able to talk with them directly, but there are books, there are movies, there are documentaries, there are, there are museums, there are multiple platforms and ways to get to know the stories, the pains, the struggles, the hopes, and the dreams of the people who live around us right here in our own city or town, but also around the world. So there's really no excuse. There's even the internet, right? Like there's this, this infinite like information highway that we have that we can really find out anything we want to know within about five minutes just by going on, like Google it. You know what I mean? So, so I think the very first step, like I said earlier, is to take that audit to see where is our love lacking. And then secondly, to now let's do something about it. Let's take some first steps. I say the first step Buy a book, you know, download a movie or DVR or, you know, on demand, a movie about that, that people group, go to a museum that is by those people for those people. So you get to understand their story. And just, just this year, actually in September, a new museum opened up on the national mall and a lot of people are going to be streaming to DC in order to go to the inauguration. Well, right there on the mall, right next to the Washington monument is the new national Smithsonian museum of African American history and culture. That's a fabulous opportunity to get to know, I mean, really in, in depth, the story of African Americans, in this land, on this land in America, and the contributions, but also the struggles and the hopes and the dreams and the history. And and so here's also, I think, one other thing I would say. History matters. And I think that part of the reason why we have such deep division in our nation that was demonstrated in, in the voting, the voting patterns and the selection, is because we are running on two different or multiple different tracks of narrative. Mm. In other words, like some, there's a, like there's a large swath of folks in the country who believe one thing happened in the country, like they actually see history in one way, and a whole other swath that sees history in a whole other way. And I think part of that is, is really the, the result of really poor educating about our history and another part of that is just that we've become lazy and our education system has really kind of gutted history and, and a serious study of, of our world. So, for example, I'll give you an example. 
I went and I spoke, this is years ago, actually, it's probably like 15 years ago, maybe more than that. I went to speak at a, at a Christian university and I wasn't, you know, it was just in a classroom. It's actually a writing class. You know, I was just getting started as a speaker and somebody asked me to come and speak in their class and I was all excited. And I spoke on the Good Samaritan, very simple passage, like pretty basic, right? Like mm-hmm. love, that's the point of it, right? Love. And so, and, and also don't limit your love. That's actually the main point. Don't limit your love. So toward the end of the talk, I was talking about a way that I kind of got over a hurdle with a friend of mine, a white friend of mine. And we, we ended up talking, me and my friend talking about the impact of slavery across generations and how that affects me to this day as an African-American woman how I am still dealing with the legacy of slavery. So the very first question, um, you know, during the Q&A time, that some, someone raised their hand in this Christian university and said, what does slavery have to do with anything? Hmm. And I thought, wow, really? <laughs> okay, let's go there. But, like, you have to have a particular narrative in order to, in order to say that question. And what he, and this guy revealed what his narrative was. He said, well, well, slavery only lasted for about 50 years. So what, <laughs> what, what, what does it have to do with anything? Well, first of all, let me just say, the Holocaust only lasted for maybe 10 at the most when you trace it all the way back, right, like to when it really started. At the most 10, and most people would actually just say four, right, because that's how long World War II was officially. Well, if that was just four years, how much more would 50 years be but it wasn't for 50 years. It was for 254 years. That's about 20 generations when you consider how young people were having children back then. So, so if, you, if you think that slavery only lasted a few years and people should just get over it, then you will, you will not understand so much about how our nation was built, how the legal systems were constructed, how the social systems were constructed, who and what could go where, and how much of that was dismantled and how much of that still exists. But if you understand that history, lived within it, then you're living in a whole other narrative. You understand the impact of those systems and structures and laws over time, over generations, and you know which ones still exist because you live them every day, right? So that's why it's really important for us to begin to, to listen, to listen intensely, deeply, with love, in order to know what love requires. Wow, that, that's really good. And I want to say just for me, I really appreciate you sharing that and sharing a lot of the stories that you did in your book. I mean, to be quite honest, mm-hmm. when I was growing up, I grew up in North Dakota. And so I grew up so white that our racial jokes were about other white people, all of basically the mm-hmm. same class, right? I had no context for this until I moved down to the South where I live now. And even now mm-hmm. I'm still playing catch up, you know, and, and it's so much mm-hmm. different when you hear somebody's individual story than when you read about it in a book. So I really do appreciate that. I'd like to kind of shift our focus. We've talked a lot about what's going on with politics and understanding, but we really haven't sure. laid a, a foundation for reconciliation mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It seems like a lot of times when we present the gospel, we talk about reconciliation between God and a a person, but it seems like Mm. really the writers of the gospel were talking about the restoration of shalom, as you put it, the right relationship Mm -hmm. between all things. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yes. Well, I think this is 
actually the thing that kind of blew my mind as I was as I was writing the book and doing the research is that when I when I when I went back, first of all, I did a pilgrimage, and this pilgrimage took me through ten states in the American South over the course of four weeks in one bus with about twenty five people, including children and families, and that bus retraced two different narratives or stories in American history. The first was the story of the Cherokee Trail of Tears. That's Mm. the time in history when um, President Andrew Jackson um, demanded that all of the Native Americans in the Southeast be removed, and that was especially the five quote-unquote civilized tribes. The Cherokee Trail of Tears was one of those nations that was removed, the Cherokee Nation. And my own family actually, according to our oral history, walked the trail. And that trail was 800 miles long. 16,000 people walked that trail in, in the winter of between 1838 and 1839. They say four to 6,000 people died. Right, so it's a lot of people died. I think yeah. about four thousand people died, and and so what you have is we we were in a bus, we were retracing this, and then the second half of the journey was retracing the African experience in America from slavery through civil rights. So I got to the end of that journey, and I was kind of dumbstruck with one question. That question was. What does my understanding of the gospel have to say to this? Mm-hmm. Like, what is the word that my understanding of the gospel has to speak that would be good news to this? Another way of putting it I, I came to later was, could I bring my understanding of the gospel to one of my ancestors while they're walking on the trail of tears and tell them, my understanding, which was really shaped by the four spiritual laws, you know, in, in, in college, we, I mean, I was in Campus Crusade for several years, right? And the four spiritual laws, which was developed by Bill Bright in, in, in Crusade, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but you are sinful and therefore separated from God. So, uh, but Jesus died to pay the penalty of your sin, O oh ancestor walking the trail of tears. Mm-hmm. And so all you need to do is pray this prayer in the back of the gold booklet, and you'll get to go to heaven. Never mind about the fact that you just lost your land, and, and it's Christians who did that. Mm-hmm. So, and then, then I imagined going to my, my third great-grandmother, um, Leah Ballard, who was the last enslaved person in our family, the last adult enslaved person in our family. And I imagine going to her maybe after one of her husbands were sold away or after she was raped for the 15,000th time and had 17 children and had, had experienced the, 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 the death of relationships that come with separation, right? And I imagine going up to her and saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> you, yeah. see, you see how crazy that is? So I'm literally, I was literally dumbstruck at the end of this journey, just going, what is what what does my gospel have to say to this? Yeah, and I had to admit the reality that it had nothing to say to this. It was mute in the face of the greatest evil that had happened. There was no good news for my ancestors. Mm-hmm. Or let's put it this way, it wasn't good enough. Right. So that's what propelled me on a thirteen-year journey to go deep into the Book of Genesis, in particular. Because it all begins in the beginning. 
Mm-hmm. And, and also because when we started that journey, we were introduced to the concept of Shalom by a professor of Shalom and now the chaplain at Whitworth College up in the Northwest. But he's, he's a professor of Shalom and I took a course with him through Fuller Seminary. And so what, what I learned was that the most emphatic picture of Shalom that we get in scripture comes in Genesis 1 and 2. Even though the word Shalom is never used, it's what we see. And what I found when I really dug deep, what I saw was I saw the radical connectedness and radical wellness of all of the relationships in creation. The relationship between humans and God, between men and women, between us and the rest of creation, between ethnic groups, within families. And you go a little further in the text and you begin to see, you know, how all of these relationships play. And one of the relationships is the relationship between humanity, actually all of creation, and the way things work. The way things work is really, that's called systems, Mm -hmm. structures, right? So all of this, it was all for blessing for all. There was no cursing in Genesis 1 or 2. And so, so, so that's really what we, when we're talking about shalom, that's what we're talking about, the radical wellness of all of the relationships in God's creation. And then I dug deeper over a period of years and, you know, began to kind of clue into the import of these three words in Genesis 1. One is the word Tov me'od, it's actually a phrase, tov me'od, which means very good, which is where the title of the book comes from. Okay. So tov me'od, very good. Goodness. You know, God looks around at the end of the sixth day and says, this is very good. And what God is actually saying there is that the goodness does not exist for the Hebrews in the thing in itself as the Greeks would have understood, you know, perfection or goodness to exist inside the thing. Mm. But for the Hebrews, they understood goodness to exist between things. Now that, that is a radical shift in our thinking about what God calls very good. I mean, I grew up understanding that the goal of Christianity was to become perfect like Jesus is perfect. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Right? Oh, totally. So you spend your whole life kind of beating yourself up about how imperfect you are and trying to be perfect, which is impossible because we're humans. We're not created to be perfect. And, and, and that's, I, what I found is that's not actually what, what, what the scripture was talking about. Goodness for the Hebrews was located between things. It's about the relationships being radically good. So sin in that, in that understanding takes on a whole new meaning. Sin is not about me being imperfect. Sin is anything that breaks any of the relationships that God declared very good in the very beginning. Yeah. Right? So that's the first word. The second one is is the word salem, or the image of God. If you just go a little bit further back in Genesis 1, 26, God says, and let us make humankind in our image. That word image is salem. And that means representative figure. That word image is, is profound because another thing I found in the research was that most scholars or many scholars today actually believe that the, the authors of Genesis 1 were a company of priests that were coming out of the Babylonian exile. And as I thought about that, as I really thought about their context, 
what they had experienced for the last 70 years. They had been told by their captors, the Babylonians, that they were created by the gods to be slaves. Well, I understand that. That's what my ancestors were told. Oh, yeah. Right? And so I started thinking, wow, this is, this is strikingly similar. I can, let, me, let me see if I can relate a little, bit, a little bit more to this. And so, you know, not only were they told that, but they were in, in the worldview of the Babylonians. All humanity was made to be slaves of the gods, but especially those who were enslaved to the Babylonians, right? Like they just had no rights at all. They were, they were, they were like pawns in a game. And so here these priests come out of exile and they're about to enter into their own rule and they sit down and they write down their own creation story, which they've been handing down for generations orally, but they decide to write it down and they are an and the doing, they're also making commentary mm-hmm. on the worldview of their oppressors. That blew my mind because their oppressors said that, but guess what they say? They say, no, let all humanity be made in the image of God. So what does that, the implications of that are huge. All humanity, there's inherent dignity. All humanity. And then they do something even more radical. They say, and let them have dominion. Yeah. Now, right, that word dominion is like really, really misunderstood. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot of people have, have said that it means to dominate. A lot of people have said that it means to even dominate unto obliteration. Some folks have understood that over the years. Francis Bacon, it's, it's said, has said that, you know, Ed said at one point, the goal is to rape the earth in order to coax the jewels that it has from it. That was his picture of dominion, right? Because you had the right to do whatever you want because you are the king. But I actually came to understand that's a human understanding of dominion that's shaped by human dominion, not God's dominion. Yeah, I mean, not even pragmatically, God's... it doesn't work, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, you, you do that, yeah, then you've got yeah. nothing left. Right, right. Of course, he didn't know that yet because he, he didn't have the industrial era yet. But now we know that the impact of the industrial area, era and what we have now is climate change, which is killing the world, killing, killing our climate, which is another thing we can talk about later if you want. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the thing, that, the thing that really blew my mind was that these priests were really flipping the Babylonian worldview on its ear and they were saying, no, not only were we cre- not created to be enslaved, but we were all created to exercise dominion, stewardship of the world. Mm-hmm. And so now this has major implications. I mean, one implication for us today is that first, that every single human being on earth is a representative figure of God, that the image of God lives inside every behind the eyes of every human being on earth. Two, if that is true, then that means, according to the Genesis 1, 26 through 27, that every single human being on earth was created with the divine call and the capacity to exercise stewardship of the world. Now, there's another implication that when we govern ourselves, our families, our communities, our states and nations, and even in our world, our businesses, when we govern 
in a way that diminishes the capacity of particular people groups or people to exercise stewardship of the world, then what we're doing is we are crushing the image of God. We are diminishing the image of God on earth. And just take that in for a minute. Because then what you understand, when you look at Jesus, when Jesus stood in in Luke 4 and he quoted, he actually quoted uh, Isaiah 61, which is about God saying to the people through the prophet Isaiah, there's going to come a day when I send the Messiah and the Messiah is going to say, hey, I've come in order to free the oppressed and to set the prisoner free. And to turn ashes, you know, into, into garlands and to wipe the tears away from those who have been oppressed. And Jesus shows up in Luke 4 and says, he reads that text and he says, it's on. Mm. It, that text has been fulfilled in my reading it. In other words, this is why I'm here. I believe that Jesus, when Jesus stood up in Luke 4, Jesus was declaring that the gospel, the good news, Jesus' good news, was that there is now a confrontation of kingdoms. The kingdoms of men, which are intent, hell-bent on crushing the image of God in some and elevating it in others. The kingdom of God has come to confront kingdoms of men that do that and to win back, to salvage, to protect the image of God and those who have been been, being crushed. And I think that's why his first sermon is Luke 4, and his last sermon is Matthew 25, where he says, whatever you do for the least of these, you've done for me. You you know, when you were sharing that in your book, the, the idea that dominion doesn't crush. It took me back to the portion in Genesis where you also shared how God created light and darkness. And then rather than crushing darkness, he did something completely different. Can you maybe share a little bit more about how God's approach to creation itself even shows us his order? Man, I can tell you what, when I was, when I was studying this passage for the, for the book, I literally had this moment where I had this aha like I saw something I'd never seen before, and it made me break out into worship and tears. I started to weep, and then I started to sing in worship because I was like, oh, my gosh, I've never seen this before. So here's what I saw. Here you have this company of priests. They've come out of 70 years of oppression. Not only that, but before the oppression, before they were in exile, they had war. And the war, you know, in the Psalms, there's actually, there are Psalms that talk about what that war was like. One of them says, babies' heads were dashed against the rocks. Mm -hmm. This was brutal. This was traumatizing. And now you've had them in captivity, enslaved for 70 years. Remember how how young they were getting married and, and, and having babies? That's about five generations. Five generations have grown up under the rule of people who said you were created to be slaves. And when you look at the Babylonian creation story itself, Enuma Elish, you see that the gods, according to the Babylonians, their many gods lived in the water, that lived in the deep, lived in the river. They were created there. They warred for supremacy there. And 
there was, there was, you know, great destruction that happened. So here you have in Genesis one, you, and it starts, you know, with the world. Uh, let me get, I need to get my Bible. <laughs> I don't want to misquote <laughs> it, but I, don't, I know we don't have time. So I'm going to try to paraphrase. It starts with this, with this moment where there's darkness covering the face of the earth and that darkness the word for darkness there actually can be translated into misery, destruction, desolation, right? So darkness, that's what it, it symbolized to the people. That's how they saw darkness. It was a symbol of destruction. And I started thinking, whoa, maybe this is, this is, this is really poetic. Maybe this is like double entendre, right? So in other words, words with two meanings being spoken at the same time. So, Maybe they're surrounding. Maybe this is how they were living. Maybe this was what it felt like to be in Babylon and for under the rule of people who said that you were created to be slaves. It felt like death and destruction and desolation. And then the deep, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the deep that actually can be translated into chaos. In fact, you know, literally it actually can be translated urine. Mm. <laughs> it's like, it's really bad. It's just really, really bad, right? But again, this was the birthplace of the very gods who said that they were created to be slaves. So the, the deep is the, really the source of their oppression. It, and so what does it mean then that they say in their creation story, there's only one God, and that God, the Spirit of God, hovers over the deep. Mm-hmm. Like position matters in the text. It's not in the deep. It's not apart from. It's not. It's not. You know, looking back at it, the spirit of God hovers over the deep. And I used to think that hovering was kind of like a, like a, you know, kind of like going back and forth over the water. But it's not that. It's actually the picture, the original readers or hearers of that word would have imagined that word hover means like to brood, as a hen broods over her eggs. Mm-hmm. And so. Now you have a picture of the Spirit of God brooding over the source of their oppression. Do you get it? Whoa! Yeah. It's like God was positioning God's self for battle, battle with their oppressor. That God was going to do battle with the source of their oppression in the middle of the darkness. And what does God do? God says, let there be light. And that's how God does battle. God births light into the world. And that light brings goodness. It's the first time we've seen the word good in the text. The light is good. So Mm -hmm. God births goodness into the world through the light. But it really struck me, it's true. God does not obliterate the deep. Right. Nor does God obliterate the darkness. God limits it. God names it. This is night. This is day. And there's power in naming. It, it's, it's basically like God is saying, I am sovereign even over the deep. I am sovereign. I am sovereign even over the darkness. In other words, I got your back. I'm bigger than the darkness that you fear. I'm bigger than the, than the ones who have even oppressed you for 70 years. And God cut the darkness. God limited it. God put boundaries on it. And then I, I got this picture of these priests exiting Babylon, which is exactly what they were doing as they were writing this text, exiting Babylon. 
exiting their their oppression. It is over. It is finished. It is done. God put boundaries on their oppression. And so I sat back and I cried and I worshiped because I realized God cares about the oppression of the weak. And on page one, God shows up. Just to think of that passage, I never would have read that in the context of oppression until you laid it out, right? And I I just so appreciate that. We are just about to kind of bring this to a close. And I'm wondering, how, how can we, we've heard a little bit about your book. There's a whole lot more. And for those listening, I would recommend that you pick this up. I mean, really, this is a really good book. But for you, how can we best pray for you, Lisa? Oh, my goodness, Brian. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, wow. Well, I mean, you can pray for me. You can pray not only for me, but for all of the people who are working to protect the image of God in every corner of our nation every day through all of the work that is done, both hands-on in terms of compassionate ministries that give out a bowl of soup or give a cot to lie on every night. You can pray for each of each person who gives of themselves in order to get, you know, emergency protection for the image of God. But you can pray for me in particular and for all of those who are, who are more activists or advocates who are dealing with public policy. Because if I learned one thing on that pilgrimage, I learned that it's possible to bless the image of God with the swipe of a pen. Mm. And it's possible also to curse the image of God with the swipe of a pen through public policy. And so you can pray for me and for all of those who are working to push governance during the Trump administration towards protection of the image of God, not towards its crushing. Wow, that, that's good. And if you could maybe challenge us as listeners to do one thing in the next seven days, what would you challenge us to do and why? That's a great question. I would challenge your listeners to do, to do this, to go. Now, I work, at, I work at Sojourners, and Sojourners has actually been around for about 45 years and is really well known for having very, very thoughtful critiques and, and reflections on public policy. And also, right in the last several years in particular, and as I've been looking at, at, our, at our work, there's been a real rise in lifting up the voices of the least of these, of the vulnerable and the oppressed themselves. And so I would say do all you can to become familiar with the stories, the struggles, the hopes and dreams of all those who Jesus called the least of these in Matthew 25, the hungry, the thirsty, the immigrant, the imprisoned, the the poor, the destitute, the naked, and those who are sick. In other words, those who in our world lack healthcare or have their healthcare endangered become familiar with their stories whether it's by picking up a newspaper or going on sojo.net in order to read the stories or become more familiar with, with what's coming down the pike. And then find a way in your neighborhood to be able to ante up, kick in, and find a way to protect the least of these and defend the least of these in the next 100 days. Wow, that's good stuff. For those of you listening, we will have links to all of the resources we talked about, as well as Lisa's book and some other things like that. The show notes will be at engagingmissions.com slash 
Lisa Sharon Harper. That's where you'll find all those links. Now, Lisa, I just... I'm, I can't say this enough. I so appreciate you putting together this book, the time and the effort that it took to do that, and then being willing to come on the show. I really appreciate what you shared. I think that we're better for it. So thank you. Thank you, Brian. And let me just also say, as I almost neglected to, I will also say, please read the book because that's a great primer for you and for your audience. Absolutely. Excellent book. And I, I second that. Very good read. <laughs> thank you. I'd really like to thank Lisa Sharon Harper for making herself available to do this. I really appreciate the full-depth gospel that she presents. It seems like there's so often division, in at least in the body of Christ. We sometimes focus on the what I would call the social gospel, which is often doing God's work, but maybe out of our own strength or maybe without relationship with God. Or on the other side, maybe the personal relationship God. It's all about knowing God and knowing things, but maybe not about doing anything. There's also this incredible tension in Scripture that speaks to these two things. For example, in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, we see Jesus talking about people who did some stuff in his name, but then he sends them away because he says he didn't know them. And I don't know about you, but that Scripture (laughs) kind of scares me. On the other end of the spectrum, we've got Matthew 25, 31 through 46, where Jesus tells the story about taking care of those in prison and those in need. And he says that what you did for them, you did for me, or what you didn't do for them, you didn't do for me. Both of those, I think, kind of bookend this this dichotomy that we see in the in, in the body of Christ and in misunderstandings of the gospel. And in her book, she really addresses that. I don't intend to get involved in, or I don't often rather, get involved in politics or public policy because, frankly, I don't understand it that well. And and so often it just, it seems like it involves control and manipulation and positioning, and frankly, that stuff just makes me feel icky. But I, I do believe that it's time for Christ's bride to step up, to rise up and become who God has created us to be. And I think that Lisa's book shares a lot about that. We're created to be a family, a beacon of hope for the widow, the orphan, the alien, the outsider, a blessing to the nations. As we move forward in these next few years, I'd encourage you to ask God and to ask yourself how you can fully em- embrace and live the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ in during this season how you can fully embrace and live the good news of Christ, God may be calling you to step out or step up. I don't know what form that'll take for you. God has gifted each of us differently. Perhaps you'll speak to public policy as Sharon does. Perhaps you'll speak to groups and be an activist as she is. Perhaps you'll join with those who need your protection. Perhaps you'll join alongside them doing something like that. Maybe you'll provide for or protect those who are in need. Perhaps you'll speak up. I would encourage you to consider and to pray about all of those and to to follow God as he leads. But what I do know is this. God has put us here and God has put us now for this time and this place for his purposes. So let's enter into God's calling in our lives. Thanks for listening to the Engaging Mission Show. You can find more great content like this along with show notes by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.